Welcome to Africa Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. This month, we have a debut novel that explores two controversial topics, politics and religion. In the novel Prince of Monkeys, released this month by Counterpoint Press, Nigerian writer Namdi Ehirim takes the reader on a tour of both Lagos and Enugu in this coming-of-age story about a group of friends. The book is set during the time of Nigerian dictator Sani Abacha, and readers see life through the interactions of Ihechi, the main character and narrator. But let's let Namdi tell you in his own words what his book is all about. Prince of Monkeys was pretty much meant to bridge a gap for me. Adichie's first two books, which both spoke to different parts of Nigeria's history, they told personal stories, but they also um, spoke to different eras of our political history. But in between both stories, there's a huge gap. This story is pretty much like a plug in between. So it tells the story of people like growing up and going through the regular throes of Nigerian life at the cultural intersections, the religious intersections, the personal intersections. But it also has like a political undertone and, and like underline because the, it pretty much tells the stories of this personal like lives and intersections in the context of the political upheaval going through the period. So while half of a yellow sun speaks of the civil war, era Popeye discuss speaks of the transition from military road to, to democratic road this pretty much starts from the 80s the military era 80s and the early 90s a set of young people growing up different backgrounds and like all children are they're really really naive to these influences of their societies around them but like as they grow up and they're exposed to the biases of their parents and the biases of the society around them, they start having conflicting perspectives on life and on each other. And that's how everything like comes together in the pot of soup. Ihechi is the narrator. Exactly. The story kind of revolves around him because he's the narrator. And this is, this seems that it's really a coming of age story between four friends between Lagos and yeah. in- Inugu. And now he's a bit passive, yeah. which is something that he recognizes a little bit later on in the book. So we're not really giving much away. But his character is quite interesting because even though he's passive, he observes everything. Can you tell us a little bit about Ihechi? He was passive and del- deliberately so. I wouldn't say that aspect was particularly personal, but for me growing up, I was always, always like very observant and I wouldn't say I was always the most vocal. I was also very like explorative, so there was really nothing I would say no to. So I would always be open to ideas of people in the group. I would always want to like dabble in new experiences and try out new things. It's not passive, being passive as a weakness, as not having direction, but just being passive in the sense that it was really probably more than most. He was open to everybody else's ideas. There was nothing anybody would say or suggest that he would outrightly condemn. I guess he's semi-autobiographical then. In that note, yeah. Mm. There are a lot of contrasts in this novel. You contrast the bustling city of Lagos with Enugu, and you also contrast um, the Igbo culture versus the Yoruba culture. The Yoruba culture, yeah. Yes, and the Ife religion also comes into play with this. It's quite interesting because you're showing different aspects of Nigerian life. Why was this important for you to bring across? There's a lot going on in your book, but you really feel like you're in Enugu and Lagos when you read the book. That aspect was also very, very personal for me because firstly, my dad is Igbo and my mom is Yoruba. Ah. So that's standard. And I also spent like the first 
10 plus years of my life in Lagos to Enugu because my dad was transferred for work. For me, growing up as a family, I had Igbo cousins, I had Yoruba cousins. So I was always exposed to both sides of the divide. And in terms of the Lagos Enugu divide, there is a very, very huge contrast, like you say. And it's not something people are aware of, I would, or are very as conscious of it to actually immerse themselves, like people from one end immerse themselves in the other. So, for example, the people who, my friends in Lagos, the people who I knew in Lagos, their perspective on life and on Nigeria was very, very different from those people who were in Enugu. For example, I used the Civil War as a starting point, and I would assume you have like a fair like knowledge of the foundations of the Civil War. Growing up in Lagos, like as a child, I was very, very ignorant of the Civil War. I didn't know there was a Civil War till I moved to Enugu, which was a really, really active setting in the Civil War and had a lot of Igbo people um, participated in the Civil War. So it was the kind of thing where my classmates in primary school knew about the Civil War. We would go to a friend's house to play and we would see like pictures of his dad or like old rifles or something like that. And it was a very, very clear and present part of their lives. But like going back to Lagos, I mean, I did my undergrad in that part of the country as well, in the western part of the country. And there were people who, at undergrad level, didn't have a fair knowledge of the civil war. So it was just a different consciousness altogether and different ways of life. And I really wanted to depict that. So if you if you notice, like, the things that the people who were in Lagos were worrying about was very, very different from, like, the typical, like, concerns of the people who were in Enugu. They had, like, different, like, pressures from their family and different things they were worried about, different things they were aspiring to. And this just informs the difference between both parts of Nigeria, I would say. Religion also factors into the continuous conversation in this book about who you align yourself with or worship or what you believe in. It's, it, I mean, it's also not just religion in terms of, like, the traditional sense, but religion in terms of, like, the political embodiment, which you really get through a number of characters, Ihechi, but also Mendaus, which who we'll talk about in a minute, and the pastor's son and Maradona. Religion becomes a, quite an important part of this book. I grew up in a very Christian household, but my parents were like very Christian. My dad is Anglican, my mom is Baptist. And at every point in my life, I went to Christian schools, elementary school, high school, university. I always went to Christian schools. And I would say... I didn't have a lot of friends outside the Christian faith. Towards the end of my undergrad, I met a few friends who were very, very Muslim. And I would feel like I had a fair knowledge of what being Muslim was about. But I still found myself having very, very ignorant perspectives and asking very, very ignorant questions. So I was reading up a lot on Islam. And I was reading up a lot on the local Nigerian traditional religions, Ifa, especially, which is heavily discussed in the book. And what I pretty much wanted to explore was being open to all things. So I wanted everybody to be able to pitch their tents and make their case for their own religion or way of life and leave it open to discussion, which isn't very commonplace like in the Nigerian system. The people who are Christians are very pro-Christian and everything else is is condemned. And when it comes to the traditional religions, I don't think anyone even gives them any audience because it's rarely ever discussed or uh, normalized or accepted in the public space. Through the book, there's a lot of dialogue, which is in form of debate, where everybody pretty much just tries to argue a case 
for their own way of life at some point and agitate for balance at some point, which I think is very, very necessary, but at the same time, very, very lacking. There are two key characters in the book, their brother and sister. One is Zenat, or the memory of Zenat, actually. And the second yeah. one is Mendaus. Mendaus, you could say the Messiah or the menace, depending on who uh, you're talking to in the book. And and he's a sort of a modern philosopher here. He's with the, this circle of friends, including Ihechi, and he goes off. Um, but his uh, worldview is quite different. Put a little bit of uh, Felakuti in there, you put a little bit of uh, Kensarawiwa, and then you have Mendaus. Can you tell us why he serves such an important role? Given our current scenario, there are two parts you could either take in handling Nigeria. There are two extremes. So Zenat is one extreme and Mendoz is another extreme. With Zenat, she's very, very carefree and she's really just trying to live her best life. And regardless of what goes on around her, she's really, really just always living in the moment and trying to enjoy everything for the now. But with Mendoz, he's very unburdened by the things going on around him, like in his present environment, and he's always trying to see how he could effect change and like influence the things going on around him. Zinat is very, very passive and regardless of what's going on. And Mendoz feels or he feels some sort of responsibility in terms of like determining outcomes and and how he, he could influence things. Just even like with the circle of friends and like later on in the book, like in society in general. The book spans the mid-80s to the mid-90s, and you use certain issues such as Kensara Wiwa's struggle in Ogoniland, but you never quite say anything about the Sani Abacha regime in terms of specifics. This is a novel, yeah. but you really said it in that time. Yeah, that was pretty much like a, a way of checking and balancing myself. Towards the end of the book where I wrote the second and third parts, that was pretty much the time where that was our last 2014 democratic election cycle. The main candidate contesting again incumbent was General Buhari, who eventually won. And I was very anti-Buhari, especially considering his role in the two military coups, the civil war, and his role as a military dictator, where there was a lot of human rights abuses and the economic downturn during his last era, which was in the 80s as well. So a lot of the political debates and arguments which informed the book were real-life political debates and arguments I had with a friend who was working actively to put this man in office. This was one of my really, really closest friends. And there was this really, really huge conflict in our personal relationship because we were at both sides. So writing the book, I wanted to the same concerns and thoughts, but I didn't want it to be an active critique on anybody in particular. So I didn't want it to be like I was criticizing Buhari in particular, criticizing Abacha or Babangida or any of these people in particular. I wanted it to be critiquing the whole notion of their form of power and what pretty much put those kind of people in power for over a decade. And 10 years later, we're still having those same type of people vying for power again and the system that upholds that. One quote that really hits you as you're reading the book is, and this is a quote, we had grown up in the neighborhood, but had never really come from the same place. And that's Ihechi talking about Mendao, Zinat, Pastor Son, and Maradona. And even though they played together, they all end up scattering to the winds. They still keep in touch, but not as, not as much as they used to. And that really is a poignant summary of growing up, really. 
the book is actually based on like your analysis and your reading, reading of it. It's probably more semi-autobiographical than I would like to admit. But yeah, so I mean, after I lived in Enigo for about five, six, seven years, I did like return back to Lagos and I turned back to the same neighborhood pretty much like Ihechi did. I had like met new people and it was pretty much finding out like new things about people and like discovering people afresh and discovering things you knew afresh. In the book, he went to Enugu. The first separation was when they went to boarding house. So within the first part, there's a departure where they all leave to boarding house and they come back and they're still together as a circle, but they've already started like deviating into being different people. And then when he leaves to Enugu and everybody goes on to do their own separate thing and they end up like pursuing different directions in life, that's also a huge deviation where everybody becomes their own person and that's pretty much life as you know everybody um, experiences that human connection and human disconnection and you get to a point where it's either like you accept your old people on new terms or you grow apart and now here's namdi ahirim reading from his book prince of monkeys the series of rains was at its peak Consequently, my journey to Enugu from Lagos was scheduled to be a tedious 10-hour foray across seven states. We set out just before daybreak. The transition of scenery in my window kept me aware of the journey's progression. More than anything else, it cured me of the banality of the trip. From the loud bus radio to the other passengers' non-stop chatter. Once we left the bus terminal, all I could see was high-rising sports utility vehicles and the high-rising buildings of Ikorodo Road. A few minutes later, the high-rise vehicles were substituted with sedans and motorcycles, and the high-rise buildings became duplexes and the occasional bungalow. I knew we had left the city center, and we were on its outskirts when the bungalows became a more permanent sighting and possessed prominent aesthetic differences from the other. The motion-coated cement walls of the city center were now mud or red brick walls. Eventually, my window pane was a continuous yarn of rich forestry, Neater to the sky at the horizon by undulating green hills, cradling me to sleep. Phantasmagoric scenes of Zena has been trampled into a roadside gutter. Menders and pastors' sons scurrying among the human avalanche to escape the burning shrine. And my mother's manic threats played through my head as I slept. Their voices echoed in my conscience, growing louder as I moved further away. And their surreal arms strangled the air from my lungs as I tried to escape the torture of the dream, writhing in the dearth and sweat of the sweltering bus. Not often enough, I was awakened by the barrage of knocks and backhanded jabs. That would have been nothing short of bloody murder, save for the glass window pane between my assailants and me. My would-be assailants were children, of an age more suitable for classrooms than interstate highways, hawking cassava sleeves with coconut, banana bunches with granuts, oranges and breads of all colors and sizes. By sunset, the transition of scenery at the start of the journey had begun to reverse till we eventually arrived in Enugu. My uncle Adolphus was already waiting at the bus station. He seemed to recognize me as soon as I dropped down from the stairs of the vehicle. He had my father's face, which in a way was my face, but his was neither as clear and calm as mine, nor as bruised and bitter as my father's. His was wrinkled and worn, yet it brimmed with life, and of course you couldn't help noticing his big round belly. On that day, he was profoundly immersed in a short-leaf suit, looking set to occupy my just-vacated seat on his return journey and take Lagos by storm.
And now it's time for our favorite book segment. We asked Suleiman Adonia, author of Silence is My Mother Tongue, which was featured on our program last February, what his favorite book on the Heinemann African book series is. He told us this story. There's this novel that means a lot to me. I've read it twice, once in Arabic and again in English. And I have a story about it. So it's a, it's a novel by Sudanese novelist Taib Saleh, and it's called Season of Migration to the North. It's a very, very popular novel. I think it was voted the best novel in, in the Arab world in the 21st century. So I, I lived in Saudi Arabia when I was between 10 to 15. And this novel is banned in Saudi Arabia. But I was lucky that my brother befriended a Sudanese intellectual who lent him this novel, Season of Migration to the North. And so my brother came, came with it home, and he started reading it. And then I was young. I can't remember exactly how old I was. I think 12, 13. And I shouldn't be touching this novel because it explores the theme of sexuality. There's violence in it. And it's very daring in the way it also talks about Islam or religion without any constraint. And so he read it, and then I read it, and I really fell in love with it. It taught me looking back, that for a writer, there shouldn't be any forbidden place. My main principle as a writer is to go wherever my characters take me, without fear, without any censorship. And I think that comes from reading the season of migration to the north at such a young age and witnessing for myself the power of words when they're not constrained, the power of freedom uh, a writer has, you know, the beauty of language resides in this idea to just allow your characters to speak and their minds. And yeah, I owe I owe greatly to Taib Saleh for teaching me a lot about story, about the poetry in prose, about ideas, and about about freedom of writing. Um, and also the the other reason why it means so much to me is that once my brother and I were walking from a friend to go to our place, and we were almost caught by the religious police while holding this book. And, you know, I can't imagine what would have happened at the time. Actually, they stopped us, but they didn't search us. I just can't imagine what would have happened had they found the book in our possession. You know, it was dangerous, but yet again, it showed me that um, I'm a risk taker. My brother was a risk taker. We love books, and we found it through smuggled network, you know, and Season of Migration to the North was the, one of the first novels that we've actually, uh, it was band novel that we read, and after that, my brother started to find other smuggled books. Yeah, I always say it, it, it was our passport to the rest of the world, you know. Literature was our, I, didn't, I can't even explain how much it means to me. It was gave us life. It made us feel as part of global citizen because, you know, when you live in Saudi Arabia, everything is censored. Especially as a child, your world is limited to what they teach you. And all they teach you is, is hate, to hate Christian, to hate Jewish, to hate women, to hate this and that. And then you find, actually, you read, and then there's something so beautiful about the world, about the others. And that's why I value reading, and I and I hope sharing this little story will encourage people not only to read their own, 
but read literature from all over the world, and I think that's why we become closer to each other. That's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening to Africa Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. If you're not already a regular podcast listener, subscribe to RFI Africa Stories in the 55 on your favorite podcast platform and check out our previous programs. Until next time. Mm-hmm.